Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meets. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Professor Catherine Olmsted. Professor Olmsted serves as Interim Chair, Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of California, Davis, and previously chaired the university's history department. Professor Olmsted has won numerous awards, including Fellowship Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences, and Humanities, University of Cambridge, Fellowship in Clare Hall, also at the University of Cambridge, and the Herbert Young Society Fellowship at the University of California, Davis. Professor Olmsted has authored a number of award-winning books, including Right Out of California, The Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism, Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories in American Democracy, World War I to 9-11, Red Spy Queen, a biography of Elizabeth Bentley, and challenging the secret government, the post-Watergate investigations of the CIA and the FBI. And today, we will be discussing Professor Olmsted's The Newspaper Axis, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler. And um, I urge all of our listeners and viewers, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon, click a button, comes to your house for free with free delivery. And it's really a, a wonderful and important work. And um, we'll get right to it. Again, thank you so much, uh, Professor, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Just to get started a little bit about your background and how you became interested in what you call the newspaper axis. Well, as you uh, just uh, detailed. I've written a few books on U.S. political and cultural history in the 20th century. That's what I've specialized in. And um, my book that was published in 2015, right out of California, looked at uh, the right-wing resistance to Franklin Roosevelt's social reforms in California, and particularly the labor struggles in California. And so while I was while I was researching that book, I became really interested in William Randolph Hearst, who was arguably the most important media baron in, in U.S. history, who owned 28 newspapers uh, in the United States in the 1920s and 30s and was able to shape the political climate more than any other media figure. And Hearst in California in particular, he owned four of the five top selling newspapers. So in writing about California in the 30s, I got more and more interested in, in Hearst and started thinking about writing a book about the right-wing media in the 1930s and how so many of these um, newspaper owners had fought against Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And then as I started researching that proposed book, though, I discovered that uh, what I found really interesting was not so much their stance on domestic politics, which was unsurprising that they were very rich men who opposed higher taxes. Uh, but instead, what was really interesting was their, their stance on foreign policy that I had not read anything about, how um, almost universally opposed to an internationalist foreign policy the, the media barons of the 1930s were. So then I started doing work on American media barons, and I discovered that there was cooperation across the Atlantic between uh, newspaper owners in the United States and those in the UK. And so it became a, a transnational project. 
Excellent. Uh, you obviously mentioned um, Hearst. Just briefly, who are the six media barons that you analyze in your book, their publications, and their reach? Okay, so starting with Hearst, as I mentioned, he had 28 newspapers. He had uh, uh, large circulation uh, magazines. He owned a newsreel company. He owned um, a, a, a movie studio that did uh, fictional films. So he had, he was, you know, the original synergistic uh, media baron. Uh, so he was the most powerful one, and he reached about 30 million people a week with his um, newspapers. And this was in a time when the United States population was about 120 million. So huge reach for him. Um, and then I look at three other uh, U.S. media barons. They were a trio of cousins that had inherited a fortune from their grandfather. It was Robert McCormick, who owned the Chicago Tribune. And his cousin, Joe Patterson, who owned the New York Daily News, which was a, a tabloid and was the best-selling newspaper in U.S. history then or since. And um, Joe's sister, Sissy Patterson, who had who owned the top-selling newspaper in Washington, D.C., the Washington Times-Herald. And then in the U.K., I looked at um, the most the best-selling media baron at the beginning of the 1930s, that was Lord uh, Harold Rothermere, who owned the Daily Mail, and the best-selling media baron at the end of the 1930s, who was Lord Max Beaverbrook, who owned the Daily Express. And collectively, these six media barons reached about 50 to 60 million Americans and Britons uh, every, every week, and thus really helped set the tone for the political debate of the era. How did um, the media barons report Hitler's initial rise to power, the initial years? Well, there was there was a spectrum. Um, certainly uh, the most overtly pro-fascist was Lord Rothermere, who owned the Daily Mail. Um, he thought that Hitler was a positive force, and he went to Germany and personally reported stories and wrote stories in addition to editorials um, about how he believed Hitler was reviving Germany, helping to make it a world power again, uh, that you could just sense the the energy and excitement uh, in Germany as the Nazi party came to power. So he was very uh, overtly pro-fascist. Uh, Hearst was also uh, sympathetic to fascism or portrayed, had sympathetic coverage of fascism in the early 1930s. Um, he had earlier had positive stories about Mussolini. He hired a lot of world leaders to write for his newspaper. So he paid uh, Hitler and several Nazi leaders to write for the Hearst publication. So to put forward this unfiltered Nazi propaganda in these American newspapers. Um, Hearst did say that he thought that Nazi anti-Semitism was a mistake. And he saw anti-Semitism not as like a feature of Nazism, but like a, a bug, you know, like some minor thing they could fix, but was otherwise quite friendly, at least in the first couple of years. The other press barons were more mixed. Sometimes they saw Hitler as a danger. Sometimes they saw Hitler as as um, a positive force for Germany. But mostly, um, they they all agreed 
that it was no business of their country's governments uh, what happened in Germany, that they should stay apart and that their their respective governments should not get involved, should not worry themselves about what was happening in Germany. And, and were the other um, press bearings, did they take the same um, note and tone about anti-Semitism that Hearst did, that it was not a nice thing, but, you know, that's that's their business and, you know, it's aberration of some sort. Right, exactly. I mean, their chief concern was that, wow, Hitler really should realize that um, his anti-Semitism is costing him international support. So maybe he should stop doing that thing. But, you know, the rest, that's great. Okay, so, so And there was you... also... Oh, please. There was also a lot of um, comments about how, well, you can understand how Hitler might be anti-Semitic because... You know, uh, the the Jews, the Israelites, as they called them sometimes, uh, are, are they would say, a, a pushy people or tactless or rude or insinuating themselves into a positions of power. So you can understand how they might want to have these um, these laws, um, this prejudice, because, you know, it, it's totally understandable. Did, did this come from a anti-Semitic worldview? Was that part of what was happening here, or again, was it mixed depending on who, which press baron we're talking about? Well, I would say that they all shared in the anti-Semitism of the era. Um, some of them were more overt than than others, but certainly in the United States, anti-Semitism was, was very common. And even as late as 1938, 58% of Americans said that they thought that the oppression of, of Jews in Germany was either wholly or most or partly their fault. Um, you know, that they, they, you know, they're pushy people. They brought it on themselves. And that that's an idea that is shared widely in the U.S. and the U.K. and is certainly shared and, and perpetuated by these media barons. And again, as we're moving through the years, um, is there a consistency as Germany begins Anschluss invading, taking over Austria, the Munich Agreement. Um, is there again, is there a shift or is it just a continuation of, of what they had been writing about before? Um, up until the invasion of, of Poland uh, for the British uh, um, press barons, it's, it's just a continuation is whatever... Hitler does each ex escalation is treated as okay that's his business it's not our business and the most important thing is to look to the empire is what the British said and not to the continent and so let the continent do what the continent has to do it's not our it's not our um it's none of our business and in the U.S. it was also strongly argued by all of the media barons that whatever is happening way over there in Europe is none of our affair. And so that includes, um, you know, the reoccupation of the Rhineland, it includes the Anschluss, um, it includes the Munich Agreement, which all of the press barons thought was a terrific, uh, what a stroke of genius and blow for peace. Well, what was a Lend-Lease and how did the media, the barons, uh, tackle Lend-Lease? Well, Lend-Lease was uh, 
Franklin Roosevelt's attempt to help the British as they were holding out against uh, the Germans in early 1941. So by this point, France had fallen and uh, the um, Germans were still in early 1941 in a, in a um, non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. So they were chiefly fighting the, the British. Um, so Roosevelt wanted to help the British and he wanted to help them by giving them arms without requiring them to pay for the arms because uh, the British had were basically running out of money by that point. So Lend-Lease was a, was a bill that became a law um, to uh, Lend-Lease or otherwise dispose of armaments or any other material for war um, to uh, anyone that the president thought was, was defending U.S. national security. Um, so the press barons put on a tremendous fight to stop land lease because they saw it as, as a sign that the U.S. was definitely taking sides in the European war, as of course it was. And they were they were right about that, that it it was a step that could lead to all out intervention. So they put on a tremendous blitz against it, trying very hard to uh, convince members of Congress to to fight against the bill. And they used apocalyptic uh, rhetoric. They said if Lend-Lease passed, it would be the end of democracy in the United States. It would be the end of the American Republic, that, that Roosevelt would become a dictator if it were passed. And I, I assume, but maybe incorrectly, the UK, the British um, press barons, um, their take on Lend-Lease, some kind of hard for them to criticize it, no? Right, right, right. So um, you know, the, the British uh, press barons were opposed to the war until Britain, Britain was actually in it. And then they had to, of course, start supporting the war, although, uh, you know, privately they, at the beginning, they were looking for ways to come up with some sort of uh, peace deal with, with Hitler to end the war early. Um, but when that didn't turn out, uh, Lord Beaverbrook became a great advocate of winning the war. So he really turned around. But um, during the Lend-Lease debate, um, Lord Rothermere had actually died by then. But Beaverbrook was a big advocate of Lend-Lease because it would now it would help his country. Now, once America is attacked by Imperial Japan in Pearl Harbor, what happens now as we shift and America now has no choice, quote unquote, but to enter the war because it was attacked? Did the position of the media barons change or did they distinguish between the Pacific theater and Europe? Well, they were uh at least officially on board the war in both theaters. Uh you know, they they said that they were supporting the military and they wanted a victory in both uh, the European and the Pacific theater. But they all um, argued that the Roosevelt administration was making a mistake in having a Europe first, um, a Europe first strategy, and that instead it should have a Pacific first strategy and fight Japan first, smash it, and then turn to Europe, uh, which Roosevelt believed would, uh, you know, would be a mistake for many reasons, but including the fact that it could lead to 
even worse conditions for uh, the opponents of Hitler for Jews in Europe. But uh, the media barons were uh, had had a very racial worldview, and so they saw the Pacific War as a race war. They would say it's the white man against the yellow race, and so that uh, you know that that should be the priority was the race war before the United States turned to fight against its you know racial kinfolk in Europe, as they sometimes called the Germans. And, and how was Franklin Roosevelt able to combat the press barons? What did he do in response to what they were writing about and trying to influence American public opinion? Well, primarily what he did was use the radio and reach out uh, to the American people directly in their homes uh, by talking to them through his fireside chats. So previous presidents had used the radio for like official speeches, but he starts these fireside chats where he talks conversationally to the American people uh, about issues of importance. And he had done that since 1933 when he became president um, when it um, when his New Deal policies were being opposed by a lot of the newspapers. So he's like reaching over the heads of the, the newspaper barons and using radio as his medium of choice. And he was a master of it. He had this conversational style that made people feel like he was talking just to them, not to millions of other people. He also uh, worked with interventionist private groups before the U.S. entered the war and encouraged them to work against the isolationists in Congress and the media. And then once the war started, he set up um, propaganda agencies. Uh, but primarily what he did before the U.S. entry into the war was was use the the radio to go around um, the media parents. Um, going back to um, William Hurst, um, if I remember correctly, he did try to run for political office, and that was an ambition of his. Um, what was his political orientation? And did he strongly oppose Roosevelt? Was that a personal issue? Was it a, a philosophical issue? Was it more about making more money for the newspapers and big headlines that people would buy the newspapers? I I think it was ideological for him. I mean, he's a fascinating figure. He had a very long career. And he when he started out, uh, he moved to New York uh, to start his newspaper there in the 1890s. So uh, he had this long history in newspapers. He started out as quite a populist uh, press baron, he was a Democrat, and he did uh, run for office, uh, governor of New York, I believe mayor of New York. Unsuccessfully, he was he did serve in Congress briefly as a populist Democrat, and he advocated for more regulation of business and uh, for um, a bigger role for the government in the economy. But however, by, by um, the 1920s, after the Bolshevik Revolution, he really became much more conservative. He became very alarmed by communism. And so he began endorsing Republican presidents because presidential candidates because he believed that they had a stronger stance against communism than the Democrats. Then when Roosevelt ran in 1932, 
Hearst briefly switched back to the Democratic Party and was strongly for Roosevelt, believed that he could turn the country around in the Great Depression, and supported him for, you know, up to about two years. And then he turned abruptly against Roosevelt, mainly because of Roosevelt's labor policies um, and his tax policies. But Roosevelt uh, started uh, adopting policies that encouraged unionization. And Hearst abhorred this. He believed that, you know, unionization was just one step on the road to communism. And he particularly hated it when unions were organizing people in his newsrooms. Um, he also uh, really hated Roosevelt's progressive tax policies, where starting in 1935 and 36, Roosevelt called for higher taxes on the very richest Americans, like the top 50 earners, which included Hearst. And so he was very angry about that. So he started calling Roosevelt um, uh, Stalin, Delano Roosevelt said that his policies were essentially communistic, that he was encouraging communism throughout the United States and would eventually turn the United States into a communist dictatorship. And it doesn't appear to be um, strategic on his part. In fact, he started losing circulation when he became so strident and, quite frankly, so absurdly opposed to Roosevelt, um, who was in many ways a very... Um, uh, moderate Democrat, well, a liberal Democrat, but somebody who definitely wanted to save com uh, capitalism from communism. And so uh, there started to be boycotts of Hearst newspapers. He started to lose circulation. So it wasn't in his business interests to be so opposed to Roosevelt, but he believed it was in his long-term financial interest. And he uh, just firmly believed that um, liberalism was, uh, you know, the road to communism. Uh, is, is there a connection of those that opposed Roosevelt on the domestic front were perhaps more conservative and then those that opposed Roosevelt's attempt to move perhaps the United States closer to war uh, in in Europe, is is there a connection between those two worldviews, or can we separate them and say there were those that opposed Roosevelt here, but those that supported Roosevelt in the other area? Yeah, I'd say that uh, you know there's some overlap, but generally, I think you have to distinguish them. So, for example, um, Joe Patterson, who was the publisher of the Daily News, was very pro New Deal um, up until 1940 when he decided that Roosevelt's uh, foreign policies were so dangerous that he had to attack Roosevelt on all fronts. But Patterson was quite liberal on domestic issues up to that point. Uh, another example would be Henry Luce, who was the owner of Time Magazine and Life Magazine um, and owned a newsreel company. Luce was uh, conservative on domestic issues and very much a Republican but uh, he became quite interventionist in uh, 1940 and used his magazines and his newsreels to argue for American uh, help for the allies. So you can't always say that if they were isolationists, they were also conservative on domestic issues. There's there's it came from different um, different issues, different worldviews. Um, you had mentioned uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the utilization, leveraging 
the radio. Um, if you look at the different media that were extant, existing then in, in the United States, you take print on one side, what was the role of radio or the film industry in all of these issues? Well, it's interesting that radio and film turned out to be much more interventionist media than than uh, the print media. Uh, this is partly because the um, newspaper owners were very isolationist ideologically, so they used their newspapers to argue against intervention. Um, but also, I think there was something inherent in the audio or audiovisual um, media that made the problems in Europe seem much more uh, vivid and real to Americans. So that, for example, when they started hearing radio reports of uh, London being bombed, uh, that Americans found that much more compelling than and 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 were much more inclined to want to help Britain than when they read in their newspapers, the sort of intellectual arguments of the press barons about why the United States should not get involved in the war. Um, it's the same way with newsreels, that a lot of the newsreel coverage of Nazi uh, atrocities and Nazi um, invasions tended to make Americans more interventionist, again, because they could see uh, these um, these actions uh, in their in their uh, newsreel theaters and the um, Hollywood, the studios were kind of late making um, interventionist films, but by about 1940, when the studio heads realized that more and more Americans were favoring intervention. And once they lost access to the German film market and didn't have to worry about German censors, Hollywood starts making more interventionist films. So starting 1940, 41, you start seeing a lot of um, mainstream Hollywood productions that advocate for intervention. So it turns out that the radio newsreel uh, Hollywood studio films um, start really creating a new media ecosystem that is more favorable to intervention, even as the press, uh, the printed press, stays militantly isolationist. And how did the, the print media react to what was happening in the radio and film? Did they counter that? Did they attack it? Or they just did their thing, you know, and, and held to their position? No, they, they countered it um, a lot of times. There were dark suggestions about, well, you know why this is happening, especially in the in the movies. It's because Jews own the studios. And um, there were a lot of suggestions, especially by 1940, 41, in these isolationist newspapers that um, Jews were uh, manipulating the United States into war by using their control over uh, movies or sometimes over over radio, um, that, that the U.S. was being stampeded into war by some sort of Jewish media conspiracy, even though... <laughs> the vast majority of print media were not owned by Jews and, and uh, were very isolationist. And there are some members of Congress that are very isolationist that hold hearings um, in, in uh, the fall of 1941 into this alleged conspiracy by radio and film to drag the United States into war. 
the testimony, though, is overtly anti-Semitic, and the hearings quickly become an embarrassment uh, for the people who organized them. And, and where where does um, a newspaper like the New York Times stand on all this? Or I, I don't know how popular it was then the Washington Post, you know, two pillars of Eastern media, print media. Right. Well, I think, you know, uh, of course, we look back now at the Washington Post because it came became so important later on. Um, it was, you know, one of several newspapers in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s and uh, not, you know, by far one of the top selling newspapers. The New York Times, you know, was very prominent at that time, but it still sold far fewer copies than the New York Daily News. Like uh, in some cases on Sundays, probably like one tenth the number of copies sold of the New York Daily News. So the New York Times um, had an important audience, you know, demographically, it it, uh, reached a lot of opinion makers and uh, I believe that, therefore, it had a disproportionate impact. And historians later tend to go back, because it's so important now, go back and say, well, the Times said this, so therefore the media was thinking that. Um, but at the time, a lot more people were reading Joe Patterson's newspaper or Robert McCormick's newspaper or William Randolph Hearst's many papers than were reading the New York Times or the Washington Post. Is it your contention that these leading press barons somehow colluded together, that they actually had a, their isolationist policy was somehow coordinated, or they each had their this ideological viewpoint and they everyone did their own thing? Well, they mostly did their own thing. I mean, this is what these men were all famous for. They were all very independent-minded um, uh, business leaders. Um and, uh, uh, you know, especially Hearst never cooperated with 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 anyone. Uh, the Patterson McCormick cousins would share copy with one another, especially Joe Patterson and Sissy Patterson uh, would share a lot of copy with each other. Uh, but I wouldn't say they had like a coordinated operation. What I found was quite interesting was that uh, Lord Beaverbrook in England for a couple of years, worked with Joe Patterson in New York Mm -hmm. to try and share uh, stories and gin up reader support for an isolationist crusade. So those two did work with each other for um, a couple of years. And I thought that was quite fascinating. I had not known that story before. But, uh, you know, for the most part, they did all go their own ways. And when when the title says six press barons who enabled Hitler, what what do you specifically mean by they enabled Hitler? Was, you know, Hitler rose you know, rose to power, took over the country, and what does that mean? Enabling Hitler specifically? Well, I think there there are several points at which uh, the U.S. or the U.K. especially governments could have intervened to signal to Hitler that he could not uh, continue on his path of rearmament and invasion and, uh, you know, territorial grabs. Um, for example, there's uh, the the reoccupation of the, of the Rhineland, uh, there's the Anschluss, uh, there is, of course, 
uh, Czechoslovakia at Munich. Um, there's the takeover of the rest of Czechoslovakia in March of 1939. You know, at each of these points, a stronger stance against the Nazis uh, might have made a real difference. But instead, um, the U.S. and the U.K. government said, you know, whatever is happening over there is your own business. We're not going to intervene. And um, as a result, uh, the, you know, the world, you know, went down the, the path to war. And so I believe that part of the reason that the U.S. and the U.K. governments took these stands is that they were operating in this media ecosystem where the media barons were telling the voters uh, and thus telling the elected leaders over and over again, you know, you don't want to get involved. It would be very dangerous to get involved. You must not confront uh, Adolf Hitler. Now, in some cases, like Lord Rothermere, I would say they would, I could have said this press baron supported Hitler or in Hearst's case, supported Hitler for a time. Um, but I think the one term, the verb that could captured what all of them did was enable, um, because some of them were never overtly pro-Hitler, but they all said, let him do what he wants to do, and let's not get involved. Now, now it's uh, 1945. The war is over. The world starts learning about massacres, the Holocaust, civilian deaths, forced labor, concentration camps. What do these press barons and their newspapers write about now? Is there a mea culpa or is it, you know, just business as usual? Like, you know, we, we, we were right, but, you know, for whatever reason, this is the way it turned out. I think that for the most part, it's business, it's business as usual. Um, certainly, Hearst is unusual in that he feels really sorry for uh, the, the Jews in Europe, and he's a supporter of opening up Palestine. Um, but he doesn't say, boy, was I wrong. That's why the British should open up Palestine. He says, you know, it's really sad what happened to them. Like it's it happened in a completely in a universe where he had no uh, uh, impact. Um also, you know, some of them continue to be extremely unilateralist and anti-internationalist, so that, for example, uh, Lord Beaverbrook is very much against European integration and the common market, um, and uh, Joe Patterson, uh, Robert McCormick, and, and Hearst, very anti-United Nations, um, and believe that their countries. Uh, they don't say, okay, now we learned that we need to have international cooperation. To the to the contrary, they say, okay, that was one episode, the war. Now we need to go back to to having a strong unilateralist, uh, imperialist uh, policy. And I wouldn't exactly call it isolationist because they do are looking abroad, but it's very unilateralist. They're they're not at all in favor of cooperating with any other countries. As you talk about the book and the subject, and especially to young people, um, why should young people study the newspaper access? What's the message that you think you would like to convey to them about this? Well, I would say that it's um, it's a story of a time in 
the history of the U.S. and the U.K. when there were um, a lot of people who were, if not actively pro-fascist, fascist enablers, right, who um, believed that uh, the right path for their country would be perhaps turning away from democracy um, and enabling fascism at home and abroad. And it's an important story to know because we face similar challenges today. And I think it's especially important to look at those who opposed the newspaper access, who opposed the isolationists and the overt fascists and how they overcame them and how they were able to rally their country to uh, an international position and uh, to to save democracy at home and abroad. Um, what's next in your research? Are you already working on the the next book, the next subject? Is it anything on the horizon that we should be looking for? Well, yes, I'm, I'm not entirely sure yet, but um, actually, what now? I'm I'm interested uh, in continuing to look at the the New Deal period in U.S. history. So I'm I'm not entirely sure what the next book will be, but it will be something from the 1930s. Okay, wonderful. Um, this has been um, fascinating. The newspaper access, and um, you know, we just got a, I think a little bit of a flavor um, from Professor Olmsted, and and urge all our listeners and viewers to to purchase the book to read it. It's it's really um, uh, important reading, and um, I enjoyed it very much, and uh, I'm sure everybody out there that's listening or viewing will enjoy it as well. Uh, again, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. All right. Thank you for having me.